We'd Like a Word. Welcome back to part three of this episode of We'd Like a Word, the third and final part with me, Paul Waters. I don't like the way you said final. It's it's all a bit end of the world, this episode, isn't it? Oh, and me, Steve Colgan. Hello. Uh, And uh, we have our guests, Peter May, author of A Winter Grave, and Paul Hardesty, who's joining us all the way from Queensland in the Barrier Reef in Australia, author of The Forcing. Um, It's like four o'clock in the morning at the moment where he is. We've been chatting for a while. Has it got any brighter where you are, Paul? (laughs) (laughs) No, our sun's not up yet. It's still pretty dark. So the latest is you saw some wallabies go by. Yeah, like I walked down the hill uh, and uh, to my office at our site here on the Great Barrier Reef. And yeah, there's wallabies everywhere. Everything comes out at night here. Everything's nocturnal. So it was be- it's beautiful, actually. A little sliver of a moon. And, well, you're not scared yeah. to go outside at night for, you know, giant spiders and snakes and... <laughs> no, I saw a coastal taipan yesterday on my walk on the beach, which is the world's most poisonous yeah. snake, I think, or second most poisonous. Yeah. Australia's yeah. got the whole set. I mean, they've got all the oh, most yeah. poisonous of everything, or the most venomous, <laughs> or the most venomous, I should say, of everything. Yeah, don't yeah. go in bare feet. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I was uh, reading. Oh, I know. I was watching a thing on Amazon Prime called The Rig, set in an oil rig off Scotland. It's got a strong environmental message. You know, if we keep pumping, taking things out and pumping things into the earth, it's going to fight back. But at one point, you've just reminded me, Paul, there's kind of a baddie in it. And he says, our relationship with nature, it's it's not a relationship. It's a war. (laughs) And when I think of your... Your animal friends. Yeah, it's a war that uh, it's a war that we're winning right now. Mm. If you want to term it in destructive terms, yeah, <laughs> yeah. And it is frustrating because I mean, we you know anyone with with an ounce of common sense can see that there is an entire world of free energy out there. I mean, we got all you know. I mean, the center of the earth is is nearly the temperature of the sun, and all that's energy that can be tapped. We've got wind, we've got rain. I mean, in this little island of the UK, we were completely surrounded by sea with all these little coastal inlets, most of which are no use to to humans. You could put little wave power generators in there. It's just so frustrating. Where I live, there's just been a, a public survey about whether or not we'd be happy having a wind turbine put up. And the result of the survey was that 78% were positive about it. Our, our MP has opposed it. So <laughs> it's, it's, it's so frustrating. It's so frustrating. Do you know that the, uh, one of the interesting things about the setting for a winter grave was uh, this village, Kinloch Leven, in the West Highlands of Scotland. And it had one of the first hydro plants in the world. And it was built to to power a, a plant in, in nearby, an aluminium plant. And it, a byproduct of it was that they provided electric lighting for everybody in the village. Now, we're talking about 1903, 1904, and it was the first village in the world where every home had electric lighting. And, it was, and they got nicknamed the Electric Village. You know, and you think about how long ago that was and how far have we come since? <laughs> Not that I know, far. I know. I, I'm one of my favourite statistics from the, the TV series I used to work on is that in 1900 there were more electric cars, percentage of cars on the road in New York, than there are now. You know, it's... it's uh, we, we just sometimes seem to, seem to be going backwards, but again, it all comes down to, again, the power of the lobbyists, isn't it? It's who the MPs listen to. They should be listening to the people not the lobbyists, but at the moment, the people don't seem to have that weight of power that overturns, you know, the chance of a nice donation towards party funds or whatever it happens to be. Mm-hmm. Paul, I wonder, can we hear a bit of the forcing your story? Yeah, I'd, I'd, I'd be glad to. I, I, 
just a, a and, short, t- and tell short us where piece. where I it's I don't want to you know, where it's on. from and give us a bit of context. Yeah. Okay. So you know it's it's near the front and um, the uh, near the front of the book near the start and the exodus has begun. So the teacher the, and his wife, the main protagonists, are have been loaded on their bus and they've handed over the keys to their house and they're being shipped to what the government is telling them is going to be, you know, comparable accommodation except south. So the northern climbs are are doing reasonably better. The south is being emptied out because it's drying up and, you know, ecosystems are changing and there's less rainfall. So they're they're basically in the bus station. And uh, so I'll, I'll read from there. Part of the book really is about the fact that youth takes over, blames older people, and so these are the people that are getting moved south. And um, in the book, actually, the, the older people who are being moved south, they're the protagonists. So I just flip it on its head, really, right? They're supposed to be the bad guys, but they're the heroes. <laughs> so anyway, we shuffled along in the queue. All of the people were old. Many could barely carry their own bags. Some had canes, a few shuffled along on walkers. There were hundreds of them, thousands maybe, implanted with who know how many hearing aids and pacemakers and artificial joints, loaded down with skin creams and hair dyes, beta blockers and renin inhibitors, thousands of daily doses of linosopropyl and Zocor and Prilosec and azithromycin, all of it to be ingested and pissed out into waterways and sewage systems from Texas to Arkansas. I don't remember how long we were there. It could have been an hour, could have been six. But I do recall the sounds, the coughs, the labored wheezes, the hushed breeze of a thousand frightened whispers. And I remember that sense of distance that had struck me so many times before, a feeling that life was somehow unfurling at the wrong scale, light years instead of arm spans. By the time we were finally loaded aboard an old Greyhound bus and our luggage loaded, At least two dozen of our number had fallen from the queue and were being treated in a temporary medical post at the far end of the station. The bus left the city and headed south on Highway 2. By morning, our remaining neighbors would wake and everything would look as it had the day before. But we, the 89ers, would be gone. All of us. No exceptions. That really makes me think of Jews being rounded up in Nazi-occupied countries. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Or the Cambodia and the uh-huh. people driven out of the cities by Pol Pot. Yeah. Or the Highland Clearances, even. Or the, <laughs> the yeah. Highland Clearances. Absolutely. Mm. Yeah. History repeats itself, right? Yeah, yeah exactly. exactly. Does. There's, there's another bit um, I just <clears throat> want to put in from your book, Paul. Um, so from page 143. A bit later on, the main character's son comes along and he's a bit cross and he expresses some of what we've been saying. He's not particularly directing it solely at his father, at at various people, including an oligarch, I suppose you'd say, a corrupt guy. And he's saying, um, the son, this is, is saying, and now look at us, you miserable, ignorant, selfish little man, hundreds of millions dead, thousands of species extinct, Mumbai, New York, Dhaka, half underwater, the whole Nile Delta inundated, Australia burnt to ash, War breaking out everywhere as despots fight over the scraps. There are no more elephants, for God's sake. No more tigers, blue whales, koalas, orangutans, narwhals, coral reefs. The Everglades are gone and the tundra is thawing so fast that there is nothing we can do to control it. Everything is spiralling out of control. 
all in the last 20 years, and all because you were too fucking stupid and selfish and ignorant to get off your rich, fat fucking asses and do something. And so now you have to pay all of you who could have done something but didn't, and there can be no exceptions. Yeah, it's yeah, hardcore. Like hardcore. I said, you know, young people are pissed off. Young people are really, really pissed off, and <laughs> you know, um, everyone's trying to hold it together. But you can see that, can't you? I mean, this is such an existential issue that you can see how this next generation, who's going to have to inherit all this and is going to have to deal with it, and who's going to have to pay for it all, you can see how it doesn't. It's not taking a lot for them to be pretty it angry. Feels a bit and bad. You're seeing it everywhere, like they Germany's post-war young generation rebelling okay it's very very small minority rebelling against their parents who they feel were nazis or yeah, collaborated yeah. with the nazis and turning against everything no, the red guards in china yeah during the cultural much, revolution yeah. yeah is that what we have to look forward to the green guards <laughs> the green guards <laughs> yeah oh, but i mean all these things have to be you know peter's the same i'm sure these things have to be cautionary tales I, I remain as a scientist as an engineer very hopeful and i say that all the time when i'm talking in a, in a scientific context at conferences and so on because we do have the means and and there is movement and young people are raising their voices and older people like us are raising their voices and we just have to find that collective action and vote frankly, the way that um, that our consciences tell us to vote, if we're lucky enough to live in a democratic society, that's another, that's another story. If we're story. lucky enough to have and, a conscience. And we can make the change. <laughs> I was saying earlier about short-termism, you know, it's, it's, yeah, I said I'm 62 this year, and the world hasn't changed, you know, my own little world, the world in which I inhabit, because the change has been very slow and very progressive, it doesn't seem fundamentally different in terms of what it was like when I was a child. But when I actually take a step back and look at it, it really is. And I mean, I think it's going to take a few more real short, sharp shocks like some of the weather systems and how they're starting to change before people will actually finally say, oh, okay, so this thing is real. You know, the fact it's slightly warmer. You know, it's it's trying to get people to realise that you've got to look ahead and see what it will be like. You know, not what it's like now, but what it will be like. I mean, the amount of idiots I've heard saying, well, if this is global warming, I'm all for it. I'm out here sunbathing. You know, it's just, oh, I just want to But an another way of looking at it is a lot of people think, okay, that seems real and plausible, but not to the extent that they're willing to change the way they live very much or give up yeah. something. So I speak from experience, having tried to persuade people. I stood for the Green Party in district council elections. We did quite well. We did three times as well as Labour and twice as well as the Liberal Democrats. However, we did half as well as the Conservatives. And it is a Conservative place where I live. They were encouraging things, but getting people... People were friendly, receptive, but clearly not receptive enough on the basis they were willing to change who they voted for or what they did and the, the guy I was standing with founded a brewery so I mean that, what's not to like about that he's a, a very attractive candidate so it is difficult to tip people into being convinced to the extent that they will change their behaviour or do something stop doing something they like or do less of what they like well it's that whole fear pizza. of missing out isn't it? it's a fear of loss I mean you get the same thing in the politics of meat I mean everything you read will tell you that the future has to be more plant based it has to be and yet people say, well, I'm not giving up my bacon sandwich. And it's like that little selfish, I need my bacon sandwich is more important than the planet burning. You know, it, it's 
But how maybe do you just have it, it once a week. Well, you know, that's what I've done. I'm, I'm much more ethical. I still eat meat, but I eat it very ethically. I buy from local farms. It's all uh, locally sourced. It's all uh, free range. And I don't eat much of it. And I'm quite happy to pay 12 quid for a free range uh, organic chicken, which is you no know, three times the price you pay in a local supermarket, for example, you know, a two for a fiver. But I make that chicken last by, by eating small amounts mm. and then using the carcass to make stock and things like this. But trying to persuade people that you can't have your fried chicken, you know, or you can't have this because mm. you're destroying the planet. It's 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 like I said, it, it's it's the bread and circuses thing. You know, it's like I'm not giving this up because they can't they're not being presented with an absolutely understandable view they they can't see what the future will be like hmm. or if they do they just ignore it because it doesn't suit what they want to do now same as you with your green party view. it's so frustrating, hmm. so frustrating. Well, there are two completely separate things i want to bring in and peter it's some of the technology you talk about and paul it's a trip that you took recently i'll tell you let's talk to peter first about tell us about some of the technology in the book so 2051 so you've got you've, we've talked about the remote controlled helicopter taxis. Tell us about some of the other stuff you have in the book because there's some policing things that might appeal to Steve. The ex cop, yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, I looked at comms, the way that the communications are going to go. What will our mobile phones look like thirty years from now? So I, I just looked at what was currently in development, and, and there are some amazing things they, being they've developed. They've got special glasses. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it, so there's this whole deep fake video thing. Yeah, with the deep fake. Well, I mean that 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 is current. That is people are using it just now. But I mean it's, it is developing forward a vast rate of knots and becoming more and more and more sophisticated to the point that. People can artificially create videos that appear to convey certain things to have people doing or saying things that they didn't do or say, but in such a convincing way that you you really can't question it. But I like the bit there's near the start of the book, so it's like a, just an introductory thing. Your cop has somebody on slam dunk for murder. They've got video evidence. He's been CCTV killing a guy. Yes. But then they go... The defence say, well, you know, what about this? And then they, they the, put up their own CCTV and that's the cop killing him. And they can make anyone do the killing. Yes. And they think, oh, well, <laughs> video evidence now. But they can. I mean, there's a whole subgenre of pornography now where you can you can download pornography where, so I'm told. Um, with, your, with your head on it. With, with celebrities' heads. Or yeah, you yeah, can, yeah. You yeah. can ask to have someone's head put on, uh, the, you know, the, the body of an actor or an actress. Yeah in inverted commas in these films well um yeah i mean very shortly it's going to take over from cgi and oh, um, and that that you know you, they can they can re you can have a, a a completely unknown actor or actress for example playing the part of marlon monroe yeah but they can graft her head on onto that body and her voice and so she could star in her own biopic you know, years after she was dead, mm. you could have Cary Grant playing Batman. Convincingly. There's an interesting one. <laughs> <laughs> and then, Paul, you took some holiday towards the end of last year. And I'm interested in this because, well, one, it's very interesting, but also Steve and I did this Writers for Ukraine benefit. And we had various Ukrainians involved and we were doing Ukrainian poetry and that. Although Steve was doing funny Eurovision facts about Ukraine. <laughs> and I was, you know, I'm sticking to what I know. Yeah, But <laughs> you've, you have a Ukrainian story to tell us. 
Yeah, so my wife is Ukrainian-Canadian, part of the huge diaspora in North America. Her family left just before the Holodomor, after the First World War, and we're pretty sure that that line of the family died out in Stalin's famine of 1933, 32-33. So when this war started, it's personal, I guess, for, for me. And I've always written about, and in my work as an engineer around the world, most of the books I've written have been about conflict. So that's what I write about. That's what I'm fascinated with. And and so, yeah, I spent all of November in Ukraine. I got a press pass from the Ukrainian Armed Forces and traveled there as essentially a freelance journalist and interviewed soldiers and doctors and aid workers and refugees and you know went to military hospitals and you know, pretty close to the front line and that kind of thing. And part of the reason was also that, you know, from an environmental point of view, I've always felt that there's an intrinsic two-way relationship between war, conflict, whatever you want to call it, and environmental destruction. So war and conflict can trigger environmental destruction. That's pretty obvious, but also can be triggered by. So um, environmental destruction can lead to conflict. Uh, Peter mentioned, um, um, I think, and somebody mentioned just earlier on about about uh, displacement and, and how that leads to conflict. And I felt that it was my duty to, both from a family point of view and, and as a writer, to, to try to write about this. Because at the end of the day, tyranny and corruption, in my experience working in a lot of different places in the world, they drive the culture and the thought processes and and the denial that lead to the kinds of things that we're talking about on this program, right? I mean, you can look at it a different way, right? It's it's corruption, it's manipulation of the political system that drive a whole bunch of uh, people who have nothing to do with it and who didn't ask for it into really, really terrible circumstances. It was a pretty life-changing um, month for me. I mean, I've worked in the Middle East and I was there in Yemen when the Civil War broke out in 94. You know, I've seen low-grade, kind of small scale civil war slash insurrection slash guerrilla stuff. But this is at a totally different level, right? This is modern mechanized warfare, 21st century high tech. And yeah, shocking, shocking. And did you visit a library? Yeah, I did. So I visited the Yaroslav, the, the wise national library in Kiev and interviewed one of the senior um, curators of the collection there. And you know, a couple minutes into our interview, the air raid siren went. So we ended up, you know, doing the interview in the bomb shelter because, of course, you know, while it was there, it was cold, the snow was falling, it was winter, and Russia had really started to press down on their campaign to knock out all the energy infrastructure so that everyone would freeze, basically, in the winter. And, uh, and yeah, there were, you know, missiles falling all over the place. It was uh, pretty intense. So I have to say also that Paul is one of the few authors I've ever come across where their bio in the book seems more unlikely than the plot of the book. Because <laughs> <laughs> uh, you've kind of been everywhere and done everything. It's, it's quite extraordinary. Yeah, because when you talked about um, Yemen, you forgot that you were in Ethiopia as the Mengistu regime, regime fell or yeah. Yeah, been bombed in Yemen and oil rigs in Texas, exploring for gold in the Arctic, mapping geology in eastern Turkey, where, naturally, you were befriended by PKK rebels. <laughs> um, 
And um, wait a minute, do these things only happen where he is? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, I'm uh, sensing a pattern. Oh, now there's a common factor here, here, isn't there? Yeah, I'm sensing a cover yeah. story as a <clears throat> as an author here. Yeah. yeah, I always wanted to travel. That was my what my dad. My dad grew up feeding me a steady diet of Negley Farson. You might have heard that that of that writer um, back in the 20s and 30s. That yeah, just yeah. this guy who just traveled all over the world. Right, The Way of a Transgressor was his favorite book. I had to read it when I was 15. Loved it given it to my sons and and I just grew up and so when I became an engineer I just put my hand up for whatever job was going and you know if it was in those places most people weren't putting their hands up so I ended <laughs> up going when I was pretty young to all these crazy places and stuff happens right if you're open to them uh stuff happens and I think I think it's important to be open to experiences and to people absolutely we're not making fun we're all insanely jealous yeah <laughs> yeah. yeah although i know although yeah. thank the, you i know it's in good spirit thank you although <laughs> peter does have something over you in that you both have books but peter's book also has a song it does it's got a theme tune <laughs> so i think maybe we should play out with peter's song but tell us a bit about it what it's called and a little bit about the story of it well, I mean, music has been my other passion through life. Played in bands all through my youth. And when I retired, in inverted commas, it was to spend a lot more time making music. I'm, I've nearly finished an album of 11 songs. But when the book was written and it was in production last summer, I was thinking, you know, we should try and write an anthem to go along with this, a kind of anthem for the youth pleading for the future of the world. So why did you think that? Because most people, when they have a book, they don't think, do you know what, I should really write an anthem with this book. Well, because, I don't know, I mean, it's a long shot, but you, you kind of hope that it's the kind of thing that might get adopted, and if it gets adopted and maybe it'll go viral, then it carries the message. It's not about making money. You don't want to make money. If it makes any money, it goes to charity. And so that was the thought. I thought, well, we can. I can do this. And um, I collaborate with um, a nice fella from Belfast. Very good, I'll uh, have to get that in. Called Dennis McCoy, who writes lyrics for a lot of my stuff. And I discussed with him what the lyrics of this song should convey. And he went away back to Ireland and he returned to France a few weeks later. And he'd written the lyric and he read it to me. And all the hair stood up in the back of my neck. And I thought, that is absolutely spot on. And I took them, I, they were inspirational really. I took them into the studio the next day, sat down at the piano and the song was, I mean, it wrote itself. It was finished in an hour. And we then went about getting all of the people we collaborate with musically in, drummer, bass player, synths, and various things that I did myself. And we got a kids' choir from the Isle of Lewis in the Outer Hebrides of Scotland to sing the chorus because it's about their future. So that was what was important about the song. And we spent a lot of time on it. There are 52 tracks in that song, believe it or not. And we had it professionally mastered and it's now available to download and all or stream on all the major platforms. And we made a video to go with it, which went up on YouTube and Vimeo. And we've got the kids because we videoed them doing the singing. And it's just a, another way. I thought if if the book and the song go out at the same time, then it doubles the chance of getting the message out there. Well, it's another way of telling stories, isn't it? Yeah, it well, Songs yes. tell stories as well. Yeah. So. Maybe we should wind up the talking now for this uh, this part three and a part three well, people say that about us all the time oh <laughs> yeah we should wrap it up wrap it up um of this uh, episode of we'd like a word we've been talking about climate emergency and writers thank you paul hardesty and 
your excellent book, The Forcing. I recommend it. And Peter May, your excellent book, A Winter Grave, which I've also really enjoyed. And you've also been listening to me, Paul Waters. And me, Stephen Colgan. And I say, you guys keep up the good work. We need more storytellers. We need more people sending this message out. We really do. And instead of our usual music, we are going to play out on a song called Don't Burn the World by the Peter May Band. So thank you very much, gents. And uh, that's goodbye for us for this episode. From me, Stephen Colgan. And me, Paul Waters. Bye-bye. Bye. Listen to the wild wind Listen to the seas Listen to the falling rain Listen to the bees Listen to the birdsong In summer morning sun Here is what they're saying Listen everyone, don't burn the world Please don't burn the world Don't drown the world We only have one world It's up to you And everybody too